I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, trying to think like an ancient Israelite bionic. Hmm. Does that mean like doing lots of rebellion and uh, going after the Astro Poles? Yeah, well, it depends. It depends on whose Astro Pole it is. You know, I have a theory that, you know, they talk so much about the trees, and then mm-hmm. they, comp- they, do this, they do this thing, this flashback. It's like a triple entendre, and like Ezekiel 31 is a good place. Uh, where they it's good that like we have 30 seconds into the show we're we're deep into theology here. <laughs> do you think our do you think our listeners would want anything less? Okay. So what happened in Ezekiel 31? Okay. Well, there's a triple entendre there. What they're doing is they take trees and compare them with with uh, nations and rulers. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also seems to be like a spiritual component to it based on the way that they write. Mm-hmm. I think what's going on there is they're comparing the the trees. Uh, the trees are where you would keep Asherah poles because they're in high places in groves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they would even mm-hmm. carve them into the tree, mm-hmm. right? The lodge. Yeah, so you've got like the cypresses or the, the cedars of Lebanon and, and all of these other things mm-hmm. going on there. Uh, but they're also talking about, it's also it's also talking about the spiritual rulers because remember that like one of the ways you can understand the Old Testament is like, here is Yahweh and the Israelites against all of the other countries surrounding it, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so they talk about they talk about these other nations in terms of the trees, right? Mm-hmm. And so what's going on is this triple entendre. You've got the trees representing the uh, um, the rulers, mm-hmm. the spiritual thing behind the rulers, and the specific ritual stuff like the Asherah poles going on mm-hmm. at the um, at mm-hmm. those groves and the tree around yeah. the trees. Well, I think you've gotten to the root root of the issue. I think we should leave that alone. I don't know about you. Keep going, keep going. Come on. (laughs) You're barking up the wrong tree. Come on, man. Come on. (laughs) Yeah. Don't stop now. Ladies and gentlemen, you just experienced what Dr. Future experiences when he opens the door to Tom Bionic in the house. and He hits the ground running with theology. But, ladies and gentlemen, for us normal people, I'm certainly would be classified as normal and average. <laughs> it's great to be with you all again for another week of Future Quake. It feels like it's been a 100 years since I've talked to Mr. Dude. Bionic. I haven't seen him in a while. I know. And uh, just hoping everything's going well with him. Uh, any, any aside from deep theological things to go into, anything else you want to share with our listeners, what's happening with you? It's interesting, man. It's like really up and down, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I spent some time in the joint this weekend. Yeah, I knew that was going to happen <clears throat> sooner or later. Praying for that, yeah. Yeah, sooner or later, house. hoping to straighten me out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I went in and did prison ministry for the first time, and that was amazing. Yeah, I recommend everybody who can do it, who's got their head glued on real straight, yeah, should go and do it. Um, mm-hmm. it just <coughs> except it makes you sneeze. I, I I'm found. so sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, folks. Um, it's like I'll tell you, man. Just the people I talk to. Like mm-hmm. like there who are going in to do it, just the people I talk to should be doing. Um, uh, we should have on the show because it's like they're just so interesting. The stuff they had to say. I was I was waiting on this one guy to show up. Uh, we had to go. Well, we had to go through these 
um, like scanners and they check our IDs mm-hmm. and everything. And I'm waiting in this room with this one guy while I'm trying to for the rest of the people to show up. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm standing next to this dude and he says, Is this your first time? I said, yeah, man. Yeah. It's the first time. He said, you're going to love it. I said, how long have you been doing this? He said, I've been doing it seven years. Really? That's a long time. He said, yeah, ever since I got out of the joint. I said, oh, so you were incarcerated. He said, yeah, well, I was in a motorcycle and truck gang for 20 years where we would steal high-end high-end vehicles and mm-hmm. use it to pay for our indulgences and stuff. And at 26 years old, I gave my life over to Satan, and then I got mm. caught about 10 years later stealing this gigantic armored car. And I was sitting there in prison, and I knew my life was over because Satan wasn't going to get me out of that one. Mm. I just knew it. And uh, and then I was in prison crying, and my uh, the guy next to me heard me about 3.30 in the morning, and he opened up a Bible and whispered to me and says, Hey, man, I got something for you that you need to hear. And I said, and I said, okay, go ahead. And he read me, he read me a single verse and I dropped to my knees and gave my life to the Lord and been a changed man ever since. Hmm. I said, wow. He said, yeah, that dude that read the scripture, he wasn't a Christian then. As far as I know, he isn't one today, but something just the Lord put it on him to read that to me. And I'm like, dang, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And then I met, yeah, I could just go on and on with stories just to the people that I was talking to there. Yeah. And then, you you know, you go in and, like, you're trying to share with these brothers and stuff. And, you know, it was awesome, man. It was cool. And just dudes, these, I, I don't know, there's this one guy, I don't know if I'll, I'll forget his face as long as I live. Yeah. Because he was so intense about what I had to tell him. And, yeah, man, there was this one guy, he was really sort of, Really intense about everything. You couldn't. It was hard to have a normal conversation with him. Mm-hmm. And um, but then, man, he got in. Like he would get into the. He would get into prison and start going. And he'd have like a. Within seconds, he would have a group of like ten people around him, and he's like preaching the gospel to them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, man, that guy has totally yeah. found his niche. You know. Have you told Futurian Paul in Texas about what you've been doing? Um. I believe we talked about it, yeah. Good, because, yeah. you know, this is something that was dear on his heart. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, my stuff was a little bit, um, my stuff was a little bit different than his. Like, mine was kind of like one-off things. Right. Very evangelistic. Right. You know, and th- there's value in that. But mm-hmm. his stuff is, you know, trying to get to get to know somebody and like one-on-one. Yeah. You and know. you'd recommend either one for our yeah, futurians. Man. It was cool, man. It was, you know, I've had a couple of, couple of brothers tell me that like you'll find more love in prison than you'll find in church yeah they're right yeah well let me reiterate to our listeners we've sort of alluded to this before but if you add up all of the people in our country in the world that are somehow living in institutional lifestyle that do not have total control of where they go or where they are and i'm including people not only in prison but people in hospitals Mm -hmm. nursing homes maybe psychiatric facilities or anything else where there's some kind of living space where you don't have control, you know, over jails, detention centers, and things like that. It's a significant part of our population. And as far as like Madison Avenue and the politicians consider them non-people because they're not there to vote. Mm-hmm. The Madison Avenue considers them non-people because they're not consumers. So mm-hmm. they're not buying stuff. 
So everything on TV you see and everything else going on generally pretends those people aren't there. Mm-hmm. And there's a reasonable chance that sometime in our life any one of us are going to be in that position. And it could be for the rest of our life forward when that happens. You know what? You so know it would behoove us to really take serious ministry to people who are dependent on us. You know what really hit me is that you you read a story. I, that's another one of those things that I probably I won't easily forget. But you read a story, or well, you you were talking about reading a story when you were kind of a younger man about how somebody was somebody interviewed some dude who was in like a like a not a prison but sort of institutionalized because of medical problems. Yeah, I think he had like a cerebral palsy or something. Yeah, and he said they they asked him what did he want. He said I just want a friend. Yeah, somebody would come see him. You know. Yeah. And uh, you know we preached about that before here, but. Um, I tell you, there's no need for people to have depression. If they just would go, you know, or low self-esteem, if mm-hmm. they would just go to one of those people and show up once in a while, those people would be waiting at the door for them to get there. Yeah. And would just want to know everything going on in their life, you know. Uh-huh. Would listen to them, would pay attention to what they said, you know, would mm-hmm. pray for their needs. And uh so... You know, we got something the people in there desperately need it. We don't give it to them, and we're missing the blessing ourselves. So it's, it's far out, isn't it? You know, it's simple. You don't have to figure out all these mysteries that we talk about on our show. Just go do something like that, and Jesus will be really that's, pleased with man, you. Man, that's the kingdom of God. You know, there's a reason that there's a reason that like he just didn't give a bullet point list of, you know, like Jesus running around Nazareth and Galilee and over in Jerusalem and stuff and telling all these parables. And healing people, it wasn't like a, a chips and dip appetizer to the main course crucifixion, yeah. you know. Yeah. So we could move on to the, you know, the the dessert of Pauline theology. Yeah. And the after dinner mints of, you know, mm-hmm. you know, John first and second, third. John. What would be the moist towelette of the Bible? Is that? Yeah. <laughs> it's all man, Toothpick. like it's it's a, it's holistic, man. You have to have. Yeah. You you got to have the empty tomb and you have to have the cross. There's a tension, right. a didactic tension there between Friday and Sunday, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of how I choose to say it. You can't uh-huh. you can't have Sunday without Friday, and you can't have Friday without Sunday. Mm-hmm. You have to have both. Right. Otherwise, you're unbalanced. Well, like Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell said, it takes two, baby. That's true. Yeah. Uh, can I make a couple quick announcements? Because we got lots of news stories. Sweetness. Cover more than we could possibly yeah. cover. I want to thank Brother William in Panama, the nation of Panama, for ordering um, Panamonium's engine and mm-hmm. the most frightening issues we will face this century, uh, both of which I have been a contributing author to and are at the front of futurequake.com. If mm-hmm. you want to order those books, it helps our ministry, mm-hmm. helps our expenses out. And I appreciate him ordering those. And also, I want to thank uh, Darlene and Tom in Ohio. I also want to thank Brother Peter and uh, I believe it's Brother Keck in Netherlands uh, for making donations to our ministry. Uh, went right to the donation button on the mm-hmm. futurequake.com. I want to thank you all so much for supporting what we do. And um, to tell you all, if you get any kind of erratic behavior from PayPal, if you come order a book, and now, so far I haven't had any reports of it yet, but uh, PayPal's, well, I don't want to all say public, but they're getting sort of strange. Uh, the fact we had a donate button uh, called called right here at the Future Quake headquarters mm-hmm. and given us all sorts of grief. Like, are we a charitable entity? Are we a 5013C? Any of this kind of stuff, which it says clear we're not on the front of 
futureway.com by the mm-hmm. button, but they don't seem to care. And so they're locking up the PayPal thing where I know at least I can't get any funds out right now. And uh, I had to wait to talk to a CPA to find out to make sure everything we were doing was right, which any income we get are reported for taxes. There's nothing shady going on, but he goes to straight income. But um, they, uh, by the time I got a hold of him, they had already locked up the account. And uh, I've sent information telling them that we are not that because they want to see all of our proof of being a nonprofit or a charity, which they actually said the fact that the word ministry was in there, they presumed that we had to be a a church and I told him I said look when Christians do anything for the Lord it's ministry mm-hmm. you know if you work with the kids at your church that's a ministry or anything you do but they have no idea they see ministry they think you've got to be a televangelist I don't know how this is going to end but um, as far as I know still now it's locked up and I haven't gotten any feedback on the information I sent them so uh, y'all just bear with me if it's uh, if you do have any issues. Hopefully, on your end, have an mm-hmm. issue. But just go on and, and get those materials. Appreciate it. And that's it on on announcements. I think I'm ready to go into Sweet some man. news. So, you want to do some news? Yeah. Go. You want to go? You go. You sure? Yeah. Okay. Now, I have a real grab bag of all sorts of different things. But since this is sort of timely, can, I know people have been watching this a little bit. Some people follow it close, some are in denial. But can I mention a couple of unique Kane stories? Herman Kane, is that okay? Another little political. What, what's the smirk over thinking there about? about? Thinking about his pizza song. Oh, yeah. Imagine there's no pizza. Yeah. Yeah, Google that on YouTube. Now I got that out of my head. I had been singing that in my head for forever. Now you put it back in my head. Well, I had that, Imagine other, there's I had no that pizza. other tune in your head. Or yeah, so you I keep messing it. with me. Yeah. Okay, here's one. Um, this is a very interesting one, not reported anywhere else. Now, this website is a left-leaning website, so try to filter out the facts and do something else with the rest. But right-wing watch. Uh, this just came out. Uh, Kane spent $1 million to run racist snuff-my-own-seed ads. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Have you heard of this? What? I mean, we've heard a lot of things about Herman Cain, but this is sort of unique. Since for weeks now, we have been urging, this is the author saying, someone, anyone in the press to ask presidential candidate Herman Cain about his role in the offensive 2006 ad campaign for an organization called America's PAC. The purpose of the ad campaign was to get black and Hispanic voters to vote or to support Republican candidates via radio ads that asked why Democrats were, quote, on the same side of the Iraq war as a, quote, Ku Klux Klan cracker like David Duke. This is what was in the commercial, okay? And another that suggested that one of the characters in the ad would never vote Republican since he supported abortion because, quote, this is to the black community saying this, if you make a little mistake with one of your hoes, you'll want to dispose of that problem. Too sweet, no questions asked. What? Okay. So he, what he was indicating was that the black people who were listening would vote Democrat because they'd want to be able to have abortion if one of their hoes got pregnant. This is what he was telling a black audience. Kane served as a spokesperson for the ad campaign and even reportedly voiced some of the ads himself. But for some reason, nobody in the press has bothered to ask Kane anything about it. But maybe someone will actually get around to asking Kane about his role now that we know he spent $1 million of his own money funding them. Okay, these same commercials. 
Okay, uh, and then it says, with the balance of power of Congress hanging in the air, a leading African-American businessman says black voters in the United States should put their historical pro-life values above political party. Um, and let's see here. Uh, I think he says, Cain will underscore that message with a one million advertising campaign in key states targeting black radio programs and urban radio stations young African-Americans enjoy. Funded by America's PAC, Kane-backed organization. Now, the the original ads, the Bush administration called the ads inappropriate, and the Republican National Committee called them racist. And the man who paid for them is now the leading front runner for the Republican presidential nomination. Okay, so the whole RNC had called them racist ads that he had funded. And now he's yeah. Sweet. So, anyway, but now just another little cane thing on this. Uh, you've been hearing about now there's three ladies who've come forward and said that uh, he, he, he said some inappropriate things with them to the point that the National Restaurant Association paid off these ladies. I think one lady 35000 another 45000 and In exchange for it, they could not tell anybody what what happened. It's hush money, basically. So they were hushed. Now, that's not to say, I don't know, these people could have just been seeking a paycheck from a big organization. You know, I know those things happen, so we don't know. But the fact is, they're talking about these people and denying it, whereas these ladies can't defend themselves. I think one of them doesn't want to get in the middle of the media circus, but um, some people are saying he's, he's violated the non the you know, the, the non-speaking thing about it because of this. But here's another event. So weird. Here, here's another one from Kane. In a cryptic comment, this comes from Politico.com, okay? Pretty major website. In a cryptic comment made at the National Journal's election 2012 preview event Tuesday, Mark Block, Herman Cain's campaign manager, I think that's the guy who actually blows smoke in the camera's face in his commercials. You know what I'm talking about? No, because I that's don't a, have a TV. Let's there talk about it. His campaign manager has a commercial where he just takes, like, draws on a cigarette and blows smoke into the lens of the camera. Mm-hmm. Another commercial. Okay, he says he he made reference to an incident involving Kane and a receptionist for a radio talk show host. I think that was the same guy. Anyways, asked by a panel moderator, Beth Reinhardt, whether he could guarantee that there's not more information forthcoming about his past. Block began his answer with a blanket denial, followed by what seemed to be a description of an unreported recent incident involving Kane. He says. Mr. Kane has never sexually harassed anybody, period. End of story, he said. Quote, as the hours go by, it's interesting that we even hear from a radio talk show host of Iowa that a receptionist thought Mr. Kane's comments were inappropriate. Hmm. Okay, here's his campaign manager saying that, okay? So this tipped him off. Politico has learned that the incident involved a staffer for Steve Deese, an influential conservative talk radio host who hosts a nationally syndicated show in Des Moines. And Deese says he did take offense. Deese, who penned an opinion piece critical of Kane earlier this month, told Politico in an email that Kane said awkward and inappropriate things to the staff at his station. Like awkward, inappropriate things he said to two females on my staff, that the fact the guy's wife is never around. And that is, I've never noticed that his wife has been around. Herman Kane. <laughs> watch yourself there. That's almost always a warning flag to me, Deese wrote. And I guess I have to say, I, I don't ever remember seeing his wife. I didn't know he was married. Um, 
but he further says, but I chose to leave that stuff out of the opinion piece and make it about his record and not the personal stuff. Pressed about exactly what Kane said to the employees of his show, Deese responded by describing how he himself treats his staff. He said, many a man has been done in by the inability to control his urges, Deese wrote. I am no different and just as vulnerable as any other man, which is why I put safeguards around me and hold myself accountable to my wife and other men in my life, especially since I have a very talented employees that happen to be women. I go out of my way to treat them like my sisters, for example. I wouldn't tell them or any other woman I am not married to nor related to how pretty she is. Now, as to how Block would know that the women at the station were uneasy about Kane's behavior, Dee said he didn't know. No idea to the best of my knowledge. Neither me nor anyone of my staff has ever spoken to Block, said the talk show host. Hmm. Okay, but now the campaign manager for Kane is the one who brought this up. Okay, uh, Deese, uh said that he and his staff had no comment on Block's remark. Before the National Journal panel began, Politico asked Kane's campaign for a comment on Deese's charges, but the campaign did not respond. Uh, formerly with the venerable, uh, venerable WHO radio station in Des Moines, Deese played a pivotal role in Mike Huckabee's 2008 Iowa caucus victory. Huckabee ran up huge margins in central Iowa, then Deese's market on his way to a nine-point caucus win. Deese, a conservative Christian, has been something of a thorn in the side of the Republican establishment, using his perch to needle GOP politicians from Mitt Romney to Governor Terry Branstad. So those were two of them that I really hadn't been hearing reported much because they've they've had the other ones to report on Herman Cain. But he is the absolute darling of Christian conservatives. And it doesn't see... And what has happened is I've listened to... Um, uh, Sean Hannity mm-hmm. and some of the other conservative people. Not really breaking te- so much there, huh? Well, their technique, their technique has been not to address whether this happened or not. What they do, it, rather than say, okay, did it happen or not, who caused it? Okay, that this is a smear campaign, that somebody's done it. So it's never addressed whether it happened or not. It's just what was the motive behind the people who are bringing it up. And, you know. I'm sure you know there are some people with some agendas bringing stuff up. But what's funny is this is the very thing that the Democrats did when all this stuff came up about Bill Clinton. And the Republicans were you know so angry that, well, they won't confront whether it really happened or not. All they're trying to do is just say, this is a smear tactic, and here they are doing the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. You know, right or wrong. You know, if, if there's something that didn't happen, it ought to be cleared up you know, and cleared out that time. But it's sort of funny to pay that kind of money to people for them to never be able to say what really happened and then to tie their hands and then badmouth these women like that. Yeah, it's horrible. So, it's kind of ridiculous, really. Anyway, that's all I know. Yeah. So you can go on. That's my Kane report. The Kane report. Herman Kane. Nine, nine, nine. Folks, it's my, it's my new theological statement. We take nine, nine, nine and we flip it upside down. <laughs> Oh, boy. Okay, give us a story. Okay, this one is from foreignpolicy.com, and it's called The Shadow Superpower. Is this about Kim Kardashian or anything like that? Yeah, they actually have, you know, it's Kim and um, uh, Christina Aguilera. Okay, all right, because of foreignpolicy.com, I figured. Yeah. Uh, With only a mobile phone and a promise of money from his uncle, David Obi did something that the Nigerian government has been trying to do for decades. He figured out how to bring electricity to the masses in Africa's most populous country. 
It wasn't a matter of technology. David is not an inventor or an engineer, and his insight into his country's electrical problems had nothing to do with fancy photovoltaics or turbines to harness the uh, harmaton. What's the new word on me? H-A-R-M-A-T-T-A-N. Harmaton? Oh. You're the guy with the Ph.D., bro. Well, what what is it? Uh, Explain it further. Okay. Uh, he didn't have fancy voltaics or turbines to harness the harmaton or any other alternative sources of energy. I don't know. I don't know. Instead, 7,000 miles from home, using a language he could hardly speak, he did what traders have always done, made a deal. Um, uh, like almost all the transactions between Nigerian traders and Chinese manufacturers, it was also sub rosa, under the radar, outside the view or control of government, part of the unheralded alternative economic universe of System D. I don't know what System D is. I'm going to tell you about it. I don't know what wine and D is because that's what's in Tennessee Pride sausage. What is That's the mystery ingredient. What is it? There's an old commercial for Tennessee Pride where this little wizard mixes in all these mystery ingredients of the sausage and the big major one's Y9D. I don't know what it is, no. but, but you know, it's one of the big Grand Ole Opry sponsors. To, stick to eating grass. You probably have never heard of System D. Neither had I until I started visiting street markets and unlicensed bazaars around the globe. System D is a slang phrase pirated from French-speaking Africa and the Caribbean. The French have a word that they often use to describe particularly effective and motivated people. They call them debrouillards. To a man, to say a man is debrouillard is to tell people how resourceful and ingenious he is. The former French colonies have sculpted this word to their own social and economic reality. See, that should be your name, Tom Debrouillard. I can go with it. Would it would be descriptive. They say that inventive, self-starting enterprise entrepreneurial merchants who are doing business on their own without registering or regulated or being regulated by the bureaucracy and for the most part without paying taxes are part of l'économie de la brouillardise or sweetened for street use system D. Hmm. This essentially translates as the ingenuity economy, the economy of improvisation and self-reliance, the do-it-yourself or DIY economy. I like the phrase. It has a carefree lilt and some friendly resonances. At the same time, it asserts an important truth. What happens in all the unregistered markets and roadside kiosks of the world is not simply haphazard. It is a product of intelligence, resilience, self-organization, and group solidarity. Solidarity, And it follows a number of well-worn, though unwritten, rules. It is, in that sense, a system. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of... Russia. I went over to Russia right after the wall came down, mm-hmm. and that was their burgeoning capitalism was a kiosk. Well, and there was like zillions of them everywhere. I don't know where they got their supply chain, but I know it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's in the absence of it's literally in the absence of uh, uh, you know, uh, in spite of in spite of the government's heavy hand, mm-hmm. uh, Adam Smith's invisible hand decides it's going to do its own thing. Yeah. You know? Wall Street's ingenious wisdom was not even there to help them. Or, I know, know, I know. You know, what's really interesting is to read some of the... I ran across a study about um, uh, post-government collapse Somalia before we invaded mm-hmm. uh, Mogadishu. And uh, the the place had nothing, you know. I mean, no government to speak of. There were no cops, anything. Yeah. It wasn't exactly the safest place to work. 
in the world to be, but it it actually self-organized, yeah. right? You know, yeah. and you know it, there were certainly problems to be sure, um, but the interesting thing is they actually it actually self-organized into a society mm-hmm. where you could go and get you know whatever you wanted. Yeah. If you see enough zombie movies, you see that happens too. Anyway, the zombies self-organized. Yeah. Well, no, not the zombies, the survivors. But oh. you know, prison. You get sort of economy set up in prisons mm-hmm. or any other kind of place like that. Mm-hmm. Devil's Island, I'm sure, probably. Yeah. Um, let me let me go on here. There's a couple of interesting facts. It used to be that System D was small, a handful of market women selling a hand of shriveled carrots to earn a handful of pennies. It was the economy of desperation. But as trade has expanded and globalized, System D has scaled up too. Today, System D is the economy of aspiration. It is where the jobs are. In 2009, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a think tank sponsored by the government of 30 of the most powerful capitalist countries and dedicated to promoting free market institutions, concluded that half the workers of the world, close to 1.8 billion people, were working in System D off the books, in jobs that were neither registered nor regulated, getting paid in cash, and most often avoiding mm-hmm. income taxes. Mm-hmm. Kids selling lemonade from the sidewalk in front of their house are part of System D. So are many of the vendors of, at stoop sales, flea market, and swap meets. So are the workers who look for employment in the parking lots of Home Depot and Lowe's. And it's not cash and hand labor. As with David Obie's deal to bring generators from China to Nigeria, System D is a multinational uh, venture, moving all sorts of products, machinery, mobile phones, computers, and more around the globe and creating international industries that help billions of people find jobs and services. System D was revealed to be an important financial coping mechanism as well. A 2009 study by Deutsche Bank, the huge German commercial lender, suggested that people in the European countries with the largest portions of their economies uh, that were unlicensed and unregulated, in other words, citizens of the countries with the most robust system D, fared far better in the economic meltdown of 2008 than folks living in centrally planned and tightly regulated nations. Studies of countries throughout Latin America have shown that desperate people turned to system D to survive during the most recent financial crisis. Um, this spontaneous system ruled by the spirit of organized improvisation will be crucial for the development of cities in the 21st century. The 20th century norm, the factory worker who nests at the same firm for his or her entire productive life, has become an endangered species. In China, the world's current industrial behemoth, workers in the massive factories have low salaries and little job security. Even in Japan, where major corporations have long guaranteed lifetime employment to full-time workers, a consensus is emerging that this system is no longer sustainable. Um, so it goes on and on and on. And um, you know, there are a lot of other important facts, but that's kind of the that's kind of the gist of it. Uh, well, you correct me as far as the significance of this, but it seems like to me it's almost mentioning that there's sort of a second law of thermodynamics of economies mm-hmm. and entropy and that things go from a state of order to disorder and that the natural state is just to sort of have like you know whatever whatever goes goes kind of thing of everybody sort of being their own little mini entrepreneur mm-hmm. trying to sell whatever they can get their hands on and, and make money and exchange and barter and this and that mm-hmm. and all of these artificial very organized structures are unnatural and 
unless they're sustained very carefully, they just actually degrade back down to the lowest denominator. Yeah. Well, I would say there's I would say there's three things that we could take away from this. One is sort of what you said is mm-hmm. that central planning is by nature inefficient and tends to destroy people's humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, two is the fact that even in the midst of the most dire systems, there's like, look, it's not that bad. People still are surviving. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And and then then three, it's like, hey, look at this. It's really cool. Uh, Adam Smith was right. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So. Those are the three points. It has a natural way of reaching its own equilibrium. Uh-huh. Without a banker to artificially stimulate it. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting story. I thought so. Very interesting. So some of our some of our Futurians who are living sort of, you know, cash in hand, doing work ad hoc for people. Yeah, that probably, may be the wave of the future. Yeah. You know what you know what's interesting is there was a couple more things and I'll just mention yeah. one here. Uh, a World Bank GDP estimate says that uh, System D, as a global phenomenon, uh, contributes $10 trillion to the global economy. Wow. But not that much to taxes, evidently. Yeah. Or a little bit less than the United States. Because wow. the United States is, the United's GDP is, is like $14 trillion. Wow. System yeah. D is 10 It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, you know, the good news of that, too, is that minimizes... What the bankers can do. They have only so much influence. System D is sort of a, mm-hmm. almost a resistance to them in some yeah. way. Uh, this is a story that I know you already know something about, okay? So if you can bear with me, I do this for any of our Futurians mm-hmm. who somehow have not heard this because it's going to happen just a few days after our show first comes out. It says, uh, oh, we have a little collapse here in the office. Nationwide emergency alert test set for November 9th. And this was, this was a story I got from Framingham, Framingham, Massachusetts, from the Metro West Daily News, but it's something nationwide. Um, it says the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the Federal Communications Commission will have the first ever national test of the emergency alert system on Wednesday, November 9th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Mm-hmm. The National Alert and Warning System was established to enable the President of the United States to address the American public during emergencies. The National Weather Service, governors, and state and local officials also utilize parts of the system to issue more localized emergency alerts. The purpose of the test is to determine the reliability of the system and its effectiveness in notifying the public of emergencies and potential dangers nationally and regionally. Similar to the frequently conducted statewide EAS test, uh, the nationwide test will involve broadcast radio and television services, cable television, satellite radio and television services, and wireline video service providers across all states and the territories of Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, and Samoa. Hmm. On November 9th, there will be an audio message that it is only a test of the system but the video test message scroll may not be the same or indicate that this is a test. The text at the top of the screen may indicate that an emergency alert notification has been issued. This notification is used to disseminate a national alert and, in this case, the test. The test is expected to last approximately three minutes. The Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency will coordinate with state public safety partners on November 9th to also test systems for pushing emergency messages to local and state public officials, including police, fire, emergency management, and public health. Mm -hmm. 
reporter. Now, this was picked up by um, a conservative religious activist slash radio host, Janet Porter. Okay, we've mentioned Janet Porter even times. So this is mm-hmm. one example of a comment on this, okay? Uh, an article she wrote says, a Porter warns alert system will put freedom at risk. And Right Wing Watch reports on her. It says, we've previously reported that far-right activists are hyperventilating over the prospect that President Obama will use the upcoming test on the emergency alert system on November 9th to take absolute control over the country. Okay, that's what they're fearing will happen. Mm-hmm. Now you can add Faith to Actions Janet Porter to the list. Taking a break from trying... Um, let's scoot this up. It says, Porter, Porter on her radio news bulletin today expressed her fear that if the government can take control of radio, TV, cable, and satellite for this, wants to prevent them from doing it in whole or in part whenever they want. She cried, this real test may be on our freedom. And here's more specifically what she says. This is only a test. You've probably heard those words many times on radio and TV as they momentarily interrupt the program or game that you're trying to hear. Next Wednesday, the federal government will be testing a new emergency system it will be different in at least three ways. One, it's nationwide. Two, it may last as long as three and a half minutes. And three, the feds will actually take temporary control of all the airwaves. If they can control the radio, TV, cable, and satellite, wants to prevent to, for them to doing it whole or part whenever they want. It's another expansion of the government into our everyday lives. The real test may be on our freedom. You know, they're religious writer a little bit late coming to the dance on this, aren't they? Yeah, it's I like guess. They're going to the Democrats up. in power. Now they suddenly realize that this thing has been a reality for forever. Now they're yeah. wising up. And I assume if a republic gets back in power, they'll forget it again. Yep. While well, the same system is there. Yeah. So you figure it's all over on Wednesday? Mm, no. I figured I'd ask Harold Camping, see if he could get more of a balanced my guess is, is answer. My guess is, is the day that this goes up, that we have a stock market takes a huge... That's your prediction? That's my prediction. Okay. What about if, like all our future insurance, sent you large sums of money to invest on their behalf? With a small commission for you, you could make sure that they're protected. Would that be I don't know if that would be a good up? idea because okay. I, don't, I, you know, I don't really trade in stocks that much. So. Okay. Uh, but you could put it in your mattress, and then it would be safe. Well, I couldn't do that because it was unethical. But, oh. you know. putting it in your mattress is unethical? Well, if they told me to invest in stocks, then yeah. Wow. If no. they said here, if they said here, hang on They're to the money. They're supposed to trust you. Oh, if they said here, hang on to the money. That's what I would do. Okay, you're just gonna do a little system D with it. Yeah. You know. System D. System. You know that'd be a good name for like a rap name. Like here in the studios, we got System D. Yo. System D is in the house. So, anyway, this this uh, will be over by the time we have our next future quake, and we'll find out whether the waves were taken over or, or what happened. But mm-hmm. it, I will admit, I was surprised that this is the first time ever they've done it. And secondly, there's a lot of other stuff. I don't know if we're going to get to all the stories, but there's stuff happening internationally in the Middle East. European Union. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we need to do like a five-minute five minute overview. In I mean, Greece, there's a lot they had of a referendum. They're not having a referendum. Uh, it's one of my stories, but they replaced all the mili- the leaders of the Greek military. Yeah. And uh, I, all I'm saying is, there's a bunch of different excuses why there could be an emergency. Mm-hmm. Not saying there would be. Most of the time, these things are false alarms. But 
It's just an ironic timing for it. Imagine you know? there's no pizza. <laughs> okay. Imagine there's a story you've got Imagine to read us. Imagine there's no pizza. How about a story there, buddy? Okay. Police chiefs authorize undercover police officers to give false evidence in court. This is from the rinky-dink little conspiracy newspaper called The Telegraph. Man, I've got a, a similar story to this. I've got... I've I mean, got, it's a different topic, but yeah. just sort of similar, similar does it, graph. Does it have to do with the U.S. police officers? No. Specifically New York? Okay. Because no. I, I had four or five. We could do like an all-police roundup. Well, just tell us this one. Okay. Police chiefs authorize undercover police officers to give false evidence in court. Senior police officers authorized undercover police officers to give false evidence in court to protect their cover as environmental protesters, it was claimed last night. Uh, This is, of course, England. The claims led to Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary, Constable, I don't know, delaying a report into undercover police tactics. Constabulary. Thank you. Constabulary. It had been due to be published today and was thought to be critical of the police. Lawyers for a convicted protester claim a metropolitan police officer named Jim Boiling, posed as an activist, was prosecuted alongside their client and lied under oath to conceal his true identity. Solicitors from the law firm Binman's claim Boiling pretended to be Jim Sutton between 1995 and 2000 and joined the nonviolent organization Reclaim the Streets, the Guardian newspaper reported. As part of his role, Binman's claim uh, he was prosecuted at Horse Ferry Road Magistrates Court in London in 1997 for disorderly behavior in a three-day trial. He maintained his fiction during the entire prosecution, they allege giving a false name and occupation and lying under oath. Binmans uh, are appealing on behalf of John Jordan, an activist who was convicted of assaulting a police officer and giving a one-year conditional discharge. They claim Boiling would potentially have been able to use his knowledge of the activist defense to boost the prosecution's case. It had previously been claimed that Boiling married an activist he met while undercover in the environmental protest movement and that he went on to have children with her. Peter Black, another police officer. That was part of his undercover activity was to have children with her. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, man. Um, East Germany, one of the big activists there in East Germany against the Russian police officer, Mm -hmm. uh, they put a... (laughs) <laughs> they put a spy up to marry this poor lady, and mm-hmm. she lived a lie for 20 years. Mm. And then when the wall came down and communism disintegrated shortly thereafter, yeah. they released the records, and they said, well, you know, what do you have on me? I've been in and out of prison half a dozen times. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in the back of the file said NC, XYZ, so she went to it and found out her husband was a spy. Wow. That's horrible, man. What did he do then? Did he stay with her? No. Hmm. He split. Black said occasional prosecutions for regular involvement in public disorder were allowed to go ahead because it helped to build their credibility with activists. A spokesman for the Met Police said the force was already reviewing issues regarding the deployment of undercover officers. Uh, He added, the Metropolitan Police Service acknowledges that these are serious matters and is continuing to review the situation and will take 
uh, and we'll take account of any additional information that becomes available. Uh, and that's that, that's sort of it. It's ugly. You can now lie on the stand. Officials. Officials can the, now lie uh, on the stand. The police officials who we are totally vulnerable to their integrity. Uh-huh. I mean, if police officials can lie and we accept it, they can plan evidence. Mm-hmm. They can do whatever they can do to change witness. And, and courts take their word as pretty much, you know, the word of God, mm-hmm. basically. So, I mean, it's it's almost all over when you're police, when, when they're officially sanctioned like that. Because mm-hmm. you can never ridiculous. have any kind of confidence you're getting justice then. It's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, so you go to traffic court and the policeman says, you were doing 85 mile an hour. What... I mean, pretty much they say, okay, you were, right? I mean, if she said, no, I wasn't, it's not like a he said, she said. That's the end of it, right? Mm-hmm. So if to keep if to keep his cover, he says you were doing 85 when you weren't, there's really no way you can get out of that, is there? Not as far as I know. I mean, they can... It's, uh, it's legal to now lie to throw you, to throw you in jail. Yeah. So... But, you know, we're worried about stuff that, you know, is an issue, you know, but stuff like gay marriage and stuff is a big thing. And now we've got a case where there's no truth told in courts anywhere. And and you won't hear Christians talk about that at all. Mm-hmm. You know, except on here and probably some far left wing sites, you know. They're too worried about, you know, that other stuff, you know, whether... Whether your teacher is leading a prayer in the classroom. That's their big concern. Yeah. It's crazy, man. It's like they're so I, I far behind. It's like it. the 1950s. Man. I don't get it. And, and I just read this thing that they were trying to crack down on internet. Internet. Uh, they didn't call it porn. Internet something. Hmm. Risque photos on the internet or something. Yeah. Yeah. Next thing you know, Prince Charles is going to admit that he was descended from Dracula. Oh, uh, wait, he did. Oh, wait, he did. All right, let's change the topic here. Okay, okay. this is uh, talking about the things that can lead to a uh, national announcement of emergency. Here's one that keeps getting more interesting. This is another one of those news sources. I mentioned one from the left side you have to take into account. Here's one from the far right, Mm -hmm. DEBCA, which is basically an arm of the Israeli Defense Force. um, That basically, I mean, it's hard to see where truth ends and propaganda begins, but... All you can do is just mark down what they say and see if it happens or not. That's the only way to tell. It, it's certainly interesting, nevertheless. Devka is now saying Israel tests new nuclear-capable missile, ends joint air exercise with Italy, starts missile drill. Now, I do, do believe this is true. I've seen on other reports that mm-hmm. um, Israel has now tested a, a nuclear-capable ICBM. Just Sweet. do that. So they're doing the very thing they're afraid of Iran doing. They can hit Germany. Well... Uh, yeah, that's not that. How far many was it? Six, seven thousand kilometers. So, oh man, seven thousand kilometers. So, wow, forty-two hundred miles. They could hit just about anything. Yeah, yeah. almost getting halfway over here. Yeah. Uh, okay. It says Wednesday, November second, shortly after announcing the successful test launch from the uh, Palmachim base of a new intercontinental ballistic missile capable of carrying a nuclear warhead. Israel disclosed in unusual detail a joint Israeli-Italian air exercise ending last Friday in Sardinia. Foreign sources identified the ICBM as an upgraded Jericho 3, 
said able to deliver a 750-kilogram nuclear warhead to a distance of 7,000 kilometers. Further, it fitted, uh, if fitted with a smaller warhead, Western intelligence estimate that 42 missiles with conventional warheads are enough to seriously disable Iran's main nuclear facility in Natanz, uh, Isfahan, and Iraq. Uh, all in all in Iran. Mm-hmm. As for Iran's newest subterranean Fordo facility near Qom, the U.S. supplied Israel with GBU-28 bunker busters in the third week of September. Mm-hmm. So now they got the bunker busters to go in. wonder what this is all about. Six IAF squadrons took part in the joint one-week exercise with Italy, consisting of 14 F-16 single and twin-seaters from the Ramat David Air Base, joined by Boeing craft for in-flight refueling of warplanes. Um, with Hercules transport, on and on. The Italian Air Force flew the Eurofighter Typhoon and F-16s. Mm-hmm. Um, after the two releases, the Israeli Defense Forces announced Wednesday that a large-scale exercise had just begun to prepare central Israel for a missile attack. Mm-hmm. This rush of military activity coincided with speculative reports splashed across Israeli media in the last fortnight that Israeli leaders are in mid-debate over whether or not to launch a preemptive attack on Iran's nuclear sites. Those reports are unfounded, Debka's military sources report. Benjamin Netanyahu's inner cabinet of eight is in fact trying to determine the usefulness of abandoning its long-standing policy of nuclear ambiguity at this time. An attack is not on its current agenda. Now, with Debka, you never know. You they could be, be right saying on. that because it means they want to attack and they're trying to discourage yeah. it. So you just never know. You just don't know what they're um, saying. November promises to be an especially critical month. The report on Iran, uh, the International Atomic Agency in Vienna, is due to publish next Tuesday, November 8th, is generally expected to reveal in close detail the advances the Islamic Republic has made toward producing a nuclear weapon. Most of this will not be news to the parties which follow Iran's progress. This goal. However, the formal ex- exposure of the scale of this program and Iran's indictment by the nuclear watchdog is intended to shock world opinion, which, again, the whole purpose, they're releasing it. Yeah. Thereby helping U.S. Barack Obama to go all the way with really tough sanctions, such as international boycotts of Iranian fuel and the Iranian state bank. Tehran has warned that the sanctions would be deemed an act of war. Western intelligence experts, as well as Debkafal's Iran watchers, believe that the Iranian leadership will not be content with statements refuting the IAEA report, but will opt for a more active response. They suggest Tehran may lift the veil over a section of its nuclear achievements, as though to say, enough of this nuclear hide-and-seek. We are about to be a nuclear power just like Israel, India, Pakistan, and North Korea. <laughs> See, they're mentioning Israel is one, even though Israel tries to pretend they're not. Um, Tehran may also conduct a partial or, or complete or partial nuclear test or else exhibit a new ballistic missile capable of a, having a nuclear warhead. Mm-hmm. So these steps might be designed to give Obama pause because Tehran would calculate that if it has already crossed the nuclear threshold, what would be the point of tough sanctions? At the same time, Tehran has made the necessary preparations for counteracting the impact of drastic penalties with the help of Russia, China, and lesser extent India. Nearly all Iranian oil deals are now channeled through Russian-Iranian sales mechanism operating in Moscow and out of western reach, and Russian banks are handling Iran's international financial transactions. So, you know, let me ask you, I mean, and, and they're also using Chinese one. 
are we really battling Iran or is it Russia and China too? If you're scrapping for a fight, because that's what you're really doing, mm-hmm. is is you're going to be fighting them too. Um, so let me just see if there's anything. It says uh, Syria is another complicating factor and poses a hard dilemma. This is because Bashar Assad's continued crackdown on protest with dozens of deaths caused day by day on both sides of the conflict could at any moment galvanize Tehran into radical action in the wake of the nuclear controversy. Counter responses by the West and Israel would light the fuse of a regional war. Uh, in these circumstances, a damaging IEA report on Iran would do more than expose its nuclear misconduct. It could bring the Middle East dangerously close to a regional conflict. Now, what about them announcing that they now have missiles that could go land in Tehran, ICBMs? Are they not culpable for raising the stakes? You would think so. I mean, when, when Moscow put ICBMs in range of the United States, what did what did United States do? They went and confronted them, right, with the risk of war. We came close to world war, mm-hmm. and we thought we were right doing it. So we're, now here's Israel we're tough. doing this. We're bad. D- doing this, and, and it's the blame is being put America on Iran. It's farther into the future. So does Israel. So uh, it says in the last two weeks, Western governments led by the U.S. as well as Israel have been turning over their options for urgent decisions on how to react to potential Iranian uh, aggression. Um, it says there's two ministerial factions uh, for and against attacking Iran, and they said that this is false. And it's designed to assault the judgment of Netanyahu and Defense Minister Ehud Barak. It's also detrimental to Israel's security. Um, it says uh, their, their Minister of Intelligence condemned the reports as irresponsible that they're having this internal battle. And he says that even more damaging than the betrayal by the Israeli soldier Anat Kam of secret military documents to an unauthorized person for which she was given jail time this week. And I think this was stuff about a planned sneak attack by Israel on Iran. She had given those documents out. Oops. I don't know if it was to stop it or what. Um, it says, the more publicity given this debate, the edgier Damascus and Tehran will become, and the closer to warlike steps. And, of course, they blame it here on Iran and uh, Assad for this. Um, so it says, therefore, military action against Iran alone or with U.S. support is not Israel's current agenda, although an ever-present option. Um, and then the question is what to do if the nuclear watchdog's revelations next Tuesday demonstrate that Tehran's pursuit is too far advanced to stop and a nuclear-armed Iran is close to reality. So, anyway. Um, I saw an update on this just today mm-hmm. that said that now the latest thought is that the United States and, and the U.K. will lead the attack on, on Iran and Israel forces will stay back to defend their homeland from Syria and from incoming missiles and Hezbollah and Hamas. And that they would also be a backup force. They need a backup for Iran. Uh. But, they, but they also said that the latest reports are that um, in about a year... Iran will move their stuff to where it's so hardened they can't get to it. And so they've got up to a year, and then Obama may want to Man, do it right they before said the election. Like three years ago. I know, that's what I say. I mean, I'm just t- reporting what they say. Yeah. So it's manipulation uh, mm-hmm. of the media. But uh, manipulation. when you start you know, doing ICBMs like this, you got a new player firing them, 
in a volatile region that's going to step things up a notch. So word, word. That's it. Well, here's another one, another nice little one. I've done a little sort of a a riff, police riff over here on the okay. bionic, the bionic chair. NYD, NYPD keeps files on Muslims who change their names. How dare they? For generations, immigrants have shed their ancestral identities and taken new Americanized names as they found their place in the melting pot. That's to assimilate, help assimilate. Yeah. Yeah. For Muslims in New York, that right of assimilation is now seen by police as a possible red flag in the hunt for terrorists. The New York Police Department monitors everyone in the city who changes his changes his or her name, according to interviews and internal police documents obtained by the Associated Press. For those whose name sounds Arabic or might be from Muslim countries, police run comprehensive background checks that include reviewing travel records, criminal histories, business licenses, and immigration documents. All this is recorded in police databases for for supervisors who review the names and select a handful of people for police to visit. Great. So you change your name, you might get a visit from the police. Why don't you want to not be called Muhammad? Mm-hmm. You're hiding something. Totally innocent. Uh, the program was conceived as a tripwire for police in the difficult hunt for homegrown terrorists, where there are no widely agreed upon warning signs, like an FBI. So they're they're having a hard time finding terrorists, so they have to invent their own, basically. <laughs> You're like reading my mind, brother. Yeah. Um, since August, the Associated Press investigation has revealed a vast NYPD intelligence collecting effort targeting Muslims following the terror attacks of September 2001. Police have conducted surveillance of entire Muslim neighborhoods, chronicling daily life, including where people eat, pray, and get their hair cut. Because getting your hair cut is a possible terrorist. Sure. Terrorist thing. Police infiltrated dozens of mosques and Muslim student groups and investigated... They're breeding ground for terrorists, uh, hair salons. Yep, I know. Well, that's why that's why uh, Zohan wanted to be a mm-hmm. hairdresser. Exactly. He's really... Keep it out. Yep. Um, monitoring name changes illustrates how the threat of terrorism now casts suspicion over what historically has been part of America's story. For centuries, foreigners have changed their names in New York often to lose any stigma attached with their surname. The Roosevelts were once Van Rosenvelts. Fashion designer Ralph Lauren was once Ralph Lifshitz. Donald Trump's grandfather changed the family name from Drumpf. I like Drumpf. Hmm. David Cohen, the NYPD's intelligence chief, worried that would-be terrorists could use their new names to lie low in New York. Current and former officials recalled. Reviewing name changes was intended to identify people who either Americanized their names or took Arabic names for the first time, said the officials, who insisted on anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss the program. Man, that's just ridiculous. Uh, NYPD spokesman Paul Brown did not respond to messages left over two days asking about the legal justification for the program and whether it had been uh, it had identified any terrorists. That's not the point, he said. The point was to... Never mind, I'm just I'm ad-libbing. The goal, the goal was to find a way to spot terrorists like Daoud Jelani and Carlos Bledsoe before they attacked. 
Gilani, a Chicago man, changed his name to the unremarkable David Coleman Headley to avoid suspicion as he helped plan the 2008 uh, shooting spree in Mumbai, India. Bledsoe of Tennessee changed his name to Abdul Hamik Mujahid Muhammad in 2007 and two years later killed one soldier and wounded another in a shooting. Did he change it to that so he wouldn't look suspicious as a terrorist with his new name? I guess so, yeah. Yeah, they would never think he was a terrorist with that Muhammad name. Yeah. Yeah. He killed one soldier and wounded another in a shooting at a recruiting station. Well, the Mumbai attack, you know, I mean, it's pretty positive Mm -hmm. that one of the people who led it was... At the very least, a double agent. Right. You know, I mean. Like the shoe bomber. Yeah. Who we, we had control of or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on one police document from that period, two of every three people who were investigated, uh, this is an NYPD around 2008, um, one police document from that period, two of every three people who had who were investigated had changed their names to or from something that could be read as Arabic sounding. All the names that were investigated, even those whose background checks came up empty, were cataloged so police could refer to them in the future. The NYPD's rules, uh, well, it just goes on and on here, just sort of. The FBI has its own ethnic mapping program that singles out Muslim communities. they, after selecting, after analysts ran background checks in late 2009, police began selecting a handful of people to visit and interview. Uh, hmm. So in this case, Cat Stevens would probably be suspicious. Wasn't he like not allowed in the country for a while? He may not have been. Uh, no, I mean Muslim I'm being serious. And, yeah, he was Muslim and he changed his name. I thought he had made some statements. Saying, you know, look, my brothers, you know, referring to Muslims are getting blown to pieces, and uh, I don't appreciate it. And they said, well, no. we're just gonna screw with your, you know, entry visa. Yeah. So they, well, he'd put out a lot of dangerous, deadly pep propaganda, like peace trains, for example. You know. Peace train. Yeah, I mean, just think about how, how is that like soul thre- train? Threatening the song like "Peace Train" was. I'm Cat Steven. Uh-huh. We're here on peace train. You got anything else on that story? No, that's about it. That's it? Okay. All right. So be careful. Be changing your name. Peace train. What about if you change it to some kind of like silly radio name? Does that count too? Yeah. I suspect. That would would sort of explain why in my little little tiny dinky rinky dink apartment, there's like a, you know, out in the field behind it, there's a... um, there's a van with antennas sticking out yeah. of it. Yeah. Man, you want to hear something weird? Yeah, that'd be a first on this show. It's always yeah. a time for a first. <laughs> I was, uh, I was, I was sitting out, um, I was sitting out at a park bench, and uh, this van drove by, like an old '70s van, mm-hmm. painted all white, and the back of the, um, uh, the the back windows were totally tinted, so you couldn't see in. Yeah. And the front. Was uh you know the two two dudes like dressed as plumbers, but they looked like they had they could you know one handedly like curl two hundred and twenty five pounds. Okay. Just these hugely muscular, yeah, clean shaven dudes who looked like you know uh, not casting spurgeon on plumbers, but mm-hmm. these guys didn't look like your average plumber. Yeah, you know? yeah. Look rather intense, and they drove 
they I can't remember where I was, but they drove down the street and they came back. And as they drove by, they kind of slowed down a little bit. Yeah. And a and a radio antenna poked up out of the back of the. <laughs> you mean it just raised up? Yeah, it was like it was like that high, and then it went, mm-hmm. when was this? Uh, sometime this week. I can't remember where I was standing, but I was watching this, and I'm like, oh. Okay. Nearby where you currently live? Yeah. That's very strange. That's very strange. Yes. Yes. Huh. That's very, very, very strange. Wow. Getting ready for this Wednesday, probably. Could be. Yeah. All right. Well, while we're on this uh, rebellion kind of thing against the man, rebellion I've got a story. against the man. This is an interesting story for Roll Call, uh, another sort of famous political website and uh, uh, group that does rep- journalism reporting. It says, Marijuana is high on Americans' issue list. Mm-hmm. Uh, forget jobs and spending cuts. Ask around online, and it just seems Americans just want the right to get high. Marijuana legalization has been the top issue on the White House's new We Are the People petition site since it launched last month as a way for citizens to lobby for issues that matter the most to them. The marijuana petition already has more than 55,000 signatures, 20,000 more than any other issue on the site, and much more than the 25,000 signature threshold administrators set to warrant an official response. The White House has yet not yet responded to the marijuana petition. So they're due a response because of the sheer number, but mm-hmm. they've been ignored. And so it has been each time the Obama administration engaged voters online, marijuana legalization was among the most popular questions raised on Twitter, YouTube, and Change.gov, the president's transition site. I don't know what this says about the online audience, Obama joked when answering questions from Change.gov two years ago. Then he dismissed the idea that establishing a legal marijuana trade could boost the economy. What it seems to say is that while the marijuana lobby has motivated motivated base of online supporters, pot advocates have failed to translate that grassroots support into political might. The political might is, you know, because they don't have a lot of money. I'm probably spending on grass. They don't have money to buy can't politicians. Even, can't even think straight. Uh, the political mind is pretty simple. What you can do for me... What can you do to harm me? We're not effectively casting that in either direction, said Alan St. Pierre, executive director for the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, I think that's normal, mm-hmm. which started the White House petition. St. Pierre said online petitions help spread the word and generate supporters who can call and write Congress, but they have not translated into the real-world pressure and money needed for his side to win. His group's political action committee gave about $10,000 in the previous election. A similar group, the Marijuana Policy Project, spent nearly 80000 in the 2010 election cycle and also devoted 60000 to lobbying last year, small amounts compared with the millions of dollars spent by other interest groups. We're not nearly as organized to put together that type of donation and PACs that arrest and immediately catch the attention of the elite body politics, St. Pierre said. Hmm. And that's part of why politics is so absolute corrupt. Yeah, because you, know, you need cash to get into it. Yeah. yeah. In reality, the advocates do have a bipartisan bill backed by Representatives Ron Paul, the presidential candidate, and Barney Frank to limit the federal government's role in marijuana enforcement. Although it's unlikely to pass, Marijuana Policy Project spokesman Morgan Fox called the measure a placeholder to keep the conversation alive. 
considering the current political climate on the federal level, I don't think we're ever going to see a tax and regulate system for marijuana consumption. I think we'll see the Fed stepping back and allowing the states to regulate it, he said. Fox praised online petitions for helping generate media interest in removing the stigma around marijuana. Politicians need courage. Courage comes in the form of lots of public support. Uh, Fox agreed with St. Pierre that the online support is not enough. He said many pot smokers and their supporters feel comfortable backing the issue on the Internet where there's relative anonymity but fear harassment if they do so in person. Well, that's obvious since it's currently illegal. Mm -hmm. That would stymie somebody overturning it. The creation of an industry trade group last year has helped legitimize the cause. The National Cannabis Industry Association represents $1.7 billion legal medical marijuana industry. $1.7 billion. It's all System D. Including growers and suppliers. Exactly right. Probably one of the biggest System D. Yep. The group has focused more on business needs, such as access to banking and tax credits, while remaining neutral on legalization. As an industry, basically, they are just trying to have the federal government respect what they are doing legally now under state law, said Steve Fox, a lobbyist for the trade group and the Marijuana Policy Project. Still, the grassroots, excuse the pun, and industry interest off of the line. In California, he said, efforts by federal prosecutors to control medical marijuana use are driving everyone together. Politicians, starting with President Obama, will need to understand that they're actually damaging themselves politically by taking these actions, he said, noting that online petitions are one way for voters to express their disappointment. The marijuana advocates said polls show that most Americans are on their side. Isn't that interesting? The majority of Americans, especially younger voters, our opposition is dying, and those who are younger just become increasingly supportive because they know it's not a big deal. Uh, yet there's also growing opposition from groups such as Mothers Against Drunk Driving. The group hasn't weighed in on legalization, but has raised concern about its impact on drugged driving. A lot of people sign petitions online who just want to smoke, said J.T. Griffin, uh, VP of Public Policy at Man. There is a bigger policy debate that needs to be addressed before lawmakers can make a good decision. For the Drug-Free America Foundation, legalization is out of the question. It is an impairing drug. People have been harmed by it. To say it is a safe drug is another one of their big fat lies. Calvina Fay, the group's executive director, said of the pro-marijuana lobby. You know, I wonder if they say that about prescription drugs. Do you think you could ever say that prescription drugs are impairing or affect people driving? Or that people have been harmed about? Well, that's what they say in the inserts. But Big Pharma says it's okay, though. Yeah. And that's no. where the big, big money is. That's why. Got the money. That's why you money, don't. Money, in the big money, alcohol money. and big pharma have huge money, so they aren't regulated. Yeah, I know it's awesome. And the problem with, I guess, you know, I'm not encouraging marijuana. I don't encourage any drug use whatsoever. But the problem with marijuana is that it can't be grown by big corporations in a lab mm-hmm. any better than it can be somebody in their backyard. Yeah. And so they've got to put a stop to it. And, again, I'm not saying anybody use it, but it's also a free country, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. I probably eat some things that aren't good for me, and I bet you some of our listeners do too. Not And me. we could regularly. <laughs> I know you're perfect, but unlike that, um, so enough of that. Yeah. You want another one? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I guess we'll just sort of keep on the you still going to be slamming the police? Well, I wouldn't say slamming, just sort of reporting Uh, stuff. 
You just had a, a, a rough turn in with them or something? You're getting them back? Yeah, something like that. All right. Um, actually, I William just, Gregg is going to ask you to take it easy on before you're done. I just find all this stuff interesting that, you know, there's such a such a love for police, you know, um, among many people. Well, you know, it's a dangerous job. They have to face a lot of bad criminals. A lot of them are very, very decent kind of people. Um, Some are. The fact is, is that you cannot have any group with power without accountability. Yeah, and that's really politicians, the thing. Politicians, police, soldiers. We all need accountability because we're all fallen people, and it corrupts absolutely. Well, and that's really the whole thing that we're sort of looking at here. Right. It's like it's, you know, no accountability. Mm-hmm. Like this story. Met police use surveillance system to monitor mobile phones. Met, of course, is London Metro. Okay. Britain's largest police force is operating covert surveillance technology that can masquerade as a mobile phone network, transmitting a signal that allows authorities to shut off phones remotely, intercept communications, and gather data about thousands thousands of users in a targeted area. The surveillance system has been procured by the Metropolitan Police by Leeds-based company Daytong PLC, which counts the U.S. Secret Service, the Ministry of Defense, and regimes in the Middle East among its customers. Strictly classified under government protocol as Listed X, it can emit a signal over an area up to an estimated 10 square kilometers, forcing hundreds of mobile phones to permit it to release their unique IMSI Mm. and IMEI identity codes, which can be used to track a person's movements in real time. The disclosure has caused concern among lawyers and privacy groups that large numbers of innocent people could be unwittingly implicated in covert intelligence gathering. An illegal search and seizure. Yep. The Met has refused to confirm whether the system is used in public order situations, such as during large protests or demonstrations. I'm sure it is. Uh, that doesn't. It's not an article. That's just me editorializing. Nick Pickles. What's his real name? Director of Privacy and Civil Liberties campaign group Big Brother Watch, Nick Pickles. <laughs> you know, and I don't mean to pick on our British Futurians, but, you know, sometimes they have sort of funny names like that. Yeah. That's why Mr. Bean, you know, has his name. Mm-hmm. But then again, I knew an American by the name of Bill Pickle, so. There you go. I know a guy with the last name of Tater. He's a goofball. Oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Civil Liberties campaign group Big Brother Watch warned the technology could give police the ability to conduct blanket and indiscriminate monitoring. It raises a number of serious civil liberties concerns and clarification is urgently needed on when and where this technology has been deployed and what data has been gathered. Oops, sorry folks. Yawning again. There you go, boring yourself. <clears throat> so boring, I'm even boring myself. Such invasive surveillance must be tightly regulated, authorized at the highest level, and only used in the most serious of investigations. It should be absolutely clear that only data directly related relating to targets of investigations is monitored or stored, he said. Daytong's website says its products are designed to provide law enforcement, military, securities agencies, and special forces with the mean to ga- means to gather early intelligence in order to identify and anticipate threat and illegal activity before it can be deployed. Um, let's see, skipping on ahead here. Um, 
A transceiver around the size of a suitcase can be placed in a vehicle or or uh, another static location and operated remotely by officers wirelessly. Detang also offers clandestine portable transceivers with covered antenna options available. Uh, Detang sells its product to nearly 40 countries around the world, including in Eastern Europe, South America, the Middle East, and Asia Pacific. In 2009, it was refused an export license to ship technology worth $0.8 million to an unnamed Asian Pacific country after the Department for Business, Innovation, and Skills judged it could be used to commit human rights abuses. But it's okay of to course. use on our folks. Yeah. Um, let's see, just sort of skipping on here. Uh, 2004-2009, Dayton won uh, over $1.6 billion in contracts, $1.6 million in contracts with U.S. government agencies, including the Secret Service, Special Operations Command, and the Bureau of Immigration and Customs. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm really sorry. That's not a good sign for our listeners when we're trying to rivet them with entertainment. Know, man, but I'm just, it's late. i got to go to bed because um, I get up so early. Uh, so it goes on and on and on, and that's sort of the gist of it. Like, they use this stuff, and they don't care. Too bad, guys. Sorry. So sorry. Well, pr- probably they're listening to us from your your um, iPhone that you have. It's probably sending everything. Yeah. You know, our big our big thing is our total irrelevance. That's our biggest protection we have. Hooray, I'm irrelevant. We have. Well, here's a story. Justice Department proposes letting government deny existence of sensitive documents. This comes from a surprising Fox News, Shannon Bream. Did we ever cover the thing where I I thought we did maybe a couple of, a couple of things ago, where uh, the the secret terror watch list, you know, the assassination mm-hmm. list, where they actually said that they're not even going to tell people about the interpretation of the law that puts you on it. We did cover yeah, that, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. You know, the, what I find a common theme on what sort of floats your boat and mine as far as selection of stories is the kind of stories. That can lull people to sleep or yawning. Yeah. But when you think about them, they have a huge impact on our life down the road, possibly. Yeah, man. Where people, it's easy just to sort of, oh, well, that's interesting. Move along. But these are things, and I think that's where this one comes in, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you talk about that fundamental idea of, of cops having to tell the truth. Any kind of officials, we depend upon their truth. In your earlier story, this is another one where... Basically, the government has the right to totally blow off an extremely important right that the public and the press has. Okay, this is a long-time internal policy that allowed Justice Department officials to deny the existence of sensitive information could become the law of the land. In effect, a license to lie if a newly proposed rule becomes federal regulation in the coming weeks. The proposed rule directs federal law enforcement agencies after personnel have determined that documents are too delicate to be released by their mm. decision, I'm sure, to respond to Freedom of Information Act requests as if the excluded records did not exist. So this is not the case of redacting information where they no, get the they stuff just, that are blacked out. they can say out, it doesn't exist and then... Which could end it. Like so. you think, well, gee, I'm, I'm all wrong. There must These suspicions and proof must have been wrong because they say it didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying... Well, that information you're not privy to. You're just saying, well, it doesn't exist. So it's basically given a complete deception. 
mm-hmm. not just reserving information. You can information. now lie yeah. whenever you feel like it. Jay Seculo, chief counsel of the American Center for Law and Justice, uh-huh. says the move appears to be in direct conflict with the administration's promise to be more open. I'm assuming these guys are going, like Fox News reporting this and Jay Seculo, because it's a Democratic president. Mm-hmm. I would hope they'd do that for Republican one as well, too, because it's wrong no matter what. It says, despite all the talk of transparency, I can't think of what's less transparent than saying a document does not exist when, in fact, it does, Seculo told Fox News. Justice Department officials said the practice has been in effect for decades, dating back to a 1987 memo from then-Attorney General Ed Meese. Hmm. In that memo and subsequent similar internal documents, Justice Department staffers were advised that they could reply to certain Freedom of Information Act requests as if the documents had never been created. That policy never became part of the law or even codified as a federal regulation. But and they did it, was, it anyway? Well, it was recently challenged in court, yeah. Earlier this year, in a, so now that push comes to shove, either they're going to mm-hmm. make it official or not. Earlier this year, in a case involving the Islamic Council of Southern California, brought against the FBI after the plaintiffs learned about the existence of documents denied by the FBI. Okay, so the Islamic Council found out that the FBI was sitting on documents that mm-hmm. they lied and said they weren't there. A federal judge in California expressed great concern about the agency using the internal policy, not only in response to the Freedom of Information Act, but to mislead the court. So, so the FBI was misleading the court. The government cannot, under any circumstance, affirmatively mislead the court. The court simply cannot perform its constitutional function if the government does not tell the truth, the judge wrote in a stinging rebuke, which that relates to your earlier story, mm-hmm. personal testimony. This is all bearing false witness. Who cares witness. about personal testimony? It's all whether it's yeah. politically expedient. And this is just another means of doing the same thing. A final version of the proposal could be issued by the end of 2011 if approved the new rule would officially become a federal regulation with the force of law. But the Justice Department got so much pushback in response to the proposal that it took the unusual step of reopening the public comment period after it had already been closed. That second comment period closed last week. You know, I never heard anything about it. Me neither. I don't know about you. I, it probably Loose, was just mentioned quietly in the Federal Register or something. Anymore. When the new comment period began, the American Civil Liberties Union became one of the most vocal critics of the proposal. Mike German, policy counsel with the ACLU, authored a lengthy letter in opposition. It's shocking that you would twist what is supposed to be a statute that's supposed to give people access to what the government is doing in a way that would allow the government to actually mislead the American public, German told Fox News. Melanie Ann Puste, director of the Justice Department's Office of Information Policy, said that the entire consideration process for the proposal has been open and transparent. Of course, and then they'll do what they want to do. Yeah. It also she also knows it's been transparent, except we're not telling you what right the document and it's already been decided. Yeah, we're going through the dog and pony show. She also notes that sensitive information requires special consideration to ensure that. And this is not talking about redacting information. This is talking about misleading people mm-hmm. to ensure that the integrity of the exclusion is maintained. Agencies must ensure that the responses do not reveal the existence of excluded records. She says, Giseculo said he's not buying that argument and argued that the Freedom of Information Act requesters who get a response telling them that officials can either confirm or deny the existence of documents now can at least go to court and sue for more information. 
If they're told no documents exist, there's no basis for a legal challenge at all. Uh, the real concern here is that it changes the entire dynamic of what the law was intended to do. And it really gives the Department of Justice the upper hand in an area where they shouldn't have it. This is disastrous. The Freedom of Information Act came up because the government had lied so many times that somebody said, you know, the people who are paying your bills and, and, and suffer underneath your actions ought to have a right to see the information. Mm-hmm. And it took some incredible abuses and tremendous work to get the Freedom of Information Act. And it has done wonderful things to open up on some of the horrible accesses of unaccountable people in government. Mm-hmm. That door is getting ready to shut again. It's like an iron curtain coming back down. And, and this is basically an admission by the government that we want to deceive our own public who we charge taxes on. Well, just That's an cares? admission that they yeah, want it's to. Like, Land of the free, home of the brave, but you can't get... Unless it's not convenient. Yeah, you can't get, um, you know, <laughs> just you can't even get the basic piece of information. Yeah. Got something here? Uh, I've always got tons of stuff. Where to begin? Where to begin? Well, actually, we've already started, but... Um, Oh, we are well. We already talked about. I mentioned the Greek military leadership, where they just fired everybody. Yeah, you got more details on that. Um, well, we could do that one. Well, here's another one. This is just sort of a a, a quick one-off here. U.S. government glossed over cancer concerns as it rolled out U.S. airport X-ray scanners. Okay. Like we've talked about this, so I'll just yeah. give a paragraph or two. Um. On September 23, 1998, a panel of radiation and safety experts gathered at a Hilton Hotel in Maryland to evaluate a new device that could detect hidden weapons and contraband. The machine, known as Secure 1000, beamed x-rays at people to see underneath their clothing. One after another, the experts convened by the Food and Drug Administration raised pointed questions about the machine because it violated a long-standing principle on radiation safety that humans shouldn't be x-rayed unless there is a medical benefit. This is, I think this is a really, really slippery slope, says Jill Lapoti, who was the director of New Jersey's Radiation Protection Program. The device was already deployed in prisons. What was next, she and others asked, courtrooms, schools, airports? I am concerned with expanding this type of product for the traveling public, said another panelist, Stanley Savick, the vice president for safety at a large electronic company. I think that would take this thing to an entirely different level of public health risk. Um, the places responding to these requests, the machine's inventors said things like this. The places I think you are not going to see this in the next five years is lower security facilities, particularly power plants, embassies, courthouses, airports, and government, Smith said. I would be extremely surprised in the next five to ten years if the Secure 1000 is sold to any of these. Um, and yet that's exactly what's going on. They're hmm. marching through the Secure 1000. Or Does that mean it's like 1,000 times the normal dose of x-rays? for? Let's put plywood. it this way. When you pass an egg through there, yeah. it comes out hard-boiled. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, so here we have people put up by the government saying, I don't think this is a good idea. We really yeah. need to look at this. And the inventor's saying, no, it's no problem. And then them showing up and, and you know, there you go. So that was just kind of a quick uh-huh. one. Um, do you want a little bit longer one maybe? I don't care. Well, what do you have? That's fine. Okay. That's what well, you want, another ten minutes worth or so. 
Uh, yeah, man, I have a I have a really cool story here if I remember to save it. Um, I was. I Do you was, have to hunt for it? You want me to read something while you're hunting? I found it here. It's uh, from Christianity Today. Yeah. Um, I've heard of them. Yep. This is from May 6th, so it's a little bit old, but it's. Uh, I've been I've been getting into and listening a lot to N.T. Wright. He's got a podcast of all things where he records his lectures okay. and stuff, speaking around the world and everything. Very interesting. Uh, I don't agree with him theologically, but one of the things that's fascinating is his understanding of the ancient mind. Yeah. Right? That's primarily what I'm listening for. And uh, he's also a bishop, uh, the Archbishop of Durham, I believe. Okay. was the fourth highest, um, fourth, high, fourth highest position in the Anglican Church, so he's no slouch in, oh. you know, theology. And Does he get to wear a hat, a fancy hat? No, they don't do that. Oh, okay. But they do believe in some stuff pretty close to the Roman Catholics. Anyway, the thing that I really appreciate about him is he is big time. He's like, you know, the gospel has to be lived, guys. What's going on? Yeah. And then he says to the people who are living the gospel, you have to believe in the cross. Come on, yeah. you have to believe in the cross. You have to have a high view of the Bible. And, uh, you know, he bat he bashes both sides. Uh, so he wrote this blog here, uh, or a blog was written about him. N.T. Wright slams American exceptionalism in Osama bin Laden mission. Hmm. Popular author and New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has accused the world of giving America a free pass for violating Pakistan's sovereignty and killing an unarmed man during the recent attack that killed Osama bin Laden. The former bishop, I didn't know he was former. The former Bishop of Durham sent a short statement to the Times religion correspondent Ruth Gledhill in which he pointed out that Americans would be furious if Great Britain's military had staged an unannounced raid against hypothetical Irish Republican Army terrorists and killed them unarmed in a Boston suburb. You're mm -hmm. darn right. The only difference, Wright says, is American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. America is allowed to do it, but the rest of us are not. I can hear him saying it. America is allowed to do this, but the rest of us are not, said Wright, who is now the research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. By what right? Who says? President Obama, Wright says, has enacted one of America's most powerful myths, the vigilante hero going outside the law to execute redemptive violence against an enemy who has rendered the legitimate authorities impotent. This is the plot of a thousand movies, comic book strips, and TV shows. Captain America, the Lone Ranger, and upgraded to high-tech Superman. The masked hero saves the world. While this myth may have been a necessary dimension of life in the Wild West, Wright says, it also legitimizes a form of vigilantism, of taking the law into one's own hands, which provides justice only of the crudest sort. What will we do when new superpowers arise and try the same trick on us, he asks. And what has any of this to do with something most Americans also believe, that the God of, the, of ultimate justice and truth was fully and finally revealed in the crucified Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who taught people to love their enemies and warned that those who take the sword will perish by the sword? It's pretty... Guys, <laughs> obviously mm -hmm. been listening to Future Quick. Uh, yeah, it sounds like some stuff I've been writing. Right, a promise... Without the eloquence, of course. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, man. N.T. Wright, I may, he's he's uh, he's kind of a preterist, mm -hmm. and he's very he's very pro kingdom and sort of yeah. anti personal salvation. 
Not yeah. that he's anti, but he, he really right. sees it in the ethic of God is inaugurating a, a new kingdom, and we we can come into that, and that's great, but he really focuses on the kingdom. Yeah. So there are some, you know, I, I wouldn't say strident mm-hmm. theological differences, but some, you know, largish ones. Does NT stand for New Testament? NT stands for uh, that's okay. gnarly theologian. Okay. Yeah. So what it... Uh, and... Anyway, so that's, I mean, that's pretty much, that's yeah. pretty much it right there. Wow. N.T. Wright. Yeah, man. He's he's one of the, I mean, he is like the heavy hitter in mm. historical Jesus studies. Mm. And yeah. right is right. Right is right. Uh, to understand the sort of breadth and depth the guy had, you know, um, I went back and, and looked at some of his work. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time that he was writing, or shortly, shortly, shortly before the time he was writing, the Jesus seminar was going on. Oh, yeah. Okay. And he basically got into historical Jesus study because he's a, he's both he's a he's a believer and a theologian, but he's yeah. also a, you know, uh, he does history, you mm-hmm. know. And he said, well, why not just keep on going, and just see if I can sort of beat these guys at their own game, so to yeah. speak. And that's exactly what he did. You know, he's got a book called Jesus: The Victory of God, which puts all of this stuff in historical perspective and just. Mm. Sort of eviscerates all the argument and really started a whole new, a whole new arena of of uh, theological study called the Third Quest, right? The first quest was Albert Schweitzer's quest for what Jesus really said and did. Yeah. And everybody said, eh, that's mostly reliable, but we can't be sure. Mm-hmm. And that was Schweitzer's thing. Um, great humanitarian, maybe not perfect, yeah. but you know, interesting yeah. guy. And then you had. Uh, uh, you know, uh, John Crossan and these other guys who started the Jesus Seminar, which was pretty anti, you know, Jesus. Is he calling us a second quest? That that, that was the yeah. second quest, the Jesus Seminar. Which is revisionist. Of totally Jesus, revisionist. From what church Yeah, they teaching. said maybe the 10% yeah. you, know, you can read. And the third quest is uh, what N.T. Wright really started. And he was like, look, these are reliable documents. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they're so reliable that I think... If we, in in Jesus's human nature, we can even almost get back into what he might have been thinking in some of these things, and mm. I can show you why. And he even instant, instituted a whole new framework of uh, theorizing over the whole thing. So mm. it's a pretty fascinating individual. Well, well, thank you for introducing him to us. He's cool, man. Cool. Jesus, the victory of God. Sounds like an exceptional guy. He's pretty awesome. He mm. spent. He spent uh, uh, a week as the Bishop of Durham, protesting, uh, protesting out in in front of a G20 summit yeah. with a bunch of Christians. Like ten thousand of them got together to pray awesome. for debt forgiveness. Awesome. Yeah, and then he went. He was also one of the invited speakers, so he was out there protesting, like totally nonviolent and everything. Yeah. But, but then he got up there and gave a gave a speech of of the forty invited speakers. He was the only person who said we need to go do debt for debt forgiveness for the poorest of the poor because that's what Jesus would yeah. do. Yep, sounds like one of them liberals, dude. Told us Jesus. Yeah, he's awesome, man. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, theological differences aside, yeah, I respect the guy immensely. Well, that's when we start to grow up, we recognize. That we see through a mirror darkly, that we're going to have some differences on some matters like that, but you can still find something. And the something. guy preaches the kingdom, and he lives the kingdom. Yeah. yeah. He, um, uh, I keep rattling on about him, but there's this great thing you can download from iTunes U, and it's a theological dialogue with N.T. Wright. Yeah. 
and each one of the people who the idea is is for scholars the thing is when you know you've got a bunch of work people read your work and they interact with it yeah you know and uh, for him that's like the big thing you know it's like interacting with my work each one of the speakers had a personal story about NT Wright mm-hmm. about something they said or they did yeah and one of them was the be- the coolest one they were all great the yeah. coolest one was the was the host for the evening. Um, he got up and said, you know, when I was uh, when I was a young person studying for ordination in my denomination, mm-hmm. I was having this I was having this theological conflict, and I stopped at N.T. Wright's house, who was a, who was one of his teachers, and I knocked on his door and I said, I'm having this problem, and he invited me in for tea, and uh, you know, um, after the third or fourth sentence, he said, let's go on a walk, and we walked all over the hills in an afternoon praying about this stuff showing mm-hmm. me you know reasoning with me and helping me through this theological conflict i was having hmm. and that's like that's pretty cool man hmm. that's a that's that's a guy who's real right. he's not just right. a, he's not just a theologian he's how would you a, guess he is now 60 and like 65 or 70 had some prestigious positions you know oh yeah uh-huh yeah. no he's not a he's not a whippersnapper yeah cool I'm sorry. That's okay. You want to go on to some uh, emails? It's up to you, brother. I don't care. I mean, I, I had one other story, but we're getting a little late. If you want, we can just go right into the yeah, uh, emails. Well, maybe the emails might be might okay. Be good. All right. Um, this is one from uh, Stephen, and uh, this is from our Futurian emails. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen says, uh, "Hello, this is Stephen." whom you met at the Future Congress Conference this past weekend. That's got it right if we got back. It was truly a blessing to be able to be there and meet you and all the others at the conference. I really enjoyed myself. It was a blessing to meet many of the speakers and people of God. There was so much to say, but I know your time is valuable, so I'll try to keep this brief. I spoke with you uh, right after it was your presentation, uh, Tom. Mm-hmm. He says, by the way, you both did wonderful jobs presenting your material. I was thoroughly impressed. I wanted to give you both a heads up for a possible show. I believe that you'll find that researching and interviewing this man will bring a new light to your audience in regards to rap music and the hip-hop music industry. I'm speaking about G. Craig Lewis. He is a ministry that speaks out against the music and how it's destroying the youth of America. He shows how this music has become a religion and it's actually devil worship in many forms. Hmm. So I believe Mr. Lewis also talks about the OTO. I think it's the Order Templu Orientalis, mm. uh, and Hollywood on some of his videos. The OTO is an organization Alex Crowley was uh, originally involved with. Actors and actresses must join this group and pledge your allegiance to them to get work in the movie and TV industry. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah, uh, I'd love, he, love to see some documentation of that. He talks about Will Smith and others. His website is www.xexministries.com. He has several videos that will be purchased. Mr. Lewis has just come out with a sixth video called Detained for, for Entry. I've not seen it yet, but I believe it will be as good as the last one. If you get a chance, check them out. But for purpose of research and interview, I check out his first video, The Truth Behind Hip Hop, and the fifth video, The Truth Behind Hip Hop, number five. Uh, for shizzle. He for says, shizzle. I felt good about you guys. Um, and both of us, uh, Mr. myself, Mr. Bionic, mm-hmm. thank God for the opportunity here to meet you. I will keep you both in my prayers. Keep up the good work, Lord willing. I'll hear you 
on the radio with Mr. Lewis in the hip hop industry later. Word Brothers up. in Christ. And that's from Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Wiki, 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 wiki. This supposed to be hip hop over there? Yeah. Okay. I'm so, nice. I'm so square. Yeah. I'm like Not a as much as me. parallel pipette over here. This is our buddy Nathan in Japan. Okay. Yeah, man. Nathan Japan has talked to us a number of times. Nathan in Japan. Nathan in Japan. Is that Japanese hip hop or anime hip hop or something? <laughs> um, something like that. Our, our dear brother here, he's got some lengthy details, but this is a follow up on Fukushima. Fukushima. Uh, if you'd like to hear, okay. This is the big tent. This is still it's a, like few a, month, it's a few months old, this email, because we're still behind. But yeah. uh, this, this is a end of summer update, basically, on mm-hmm. Fukushima. He says, I apologize for not getting back earlier. I was hoping to pull together something a bit more useful for all of you at future headquarters. But for the record, I'm a poor researcher and live for the most part of life outside the influence of the mass media in a fairly secluded corner of this beautiful country. Awesome. Lucky for him. Yeah. Tom may appreciate the fact that when my wife and I purchased our tiny TV a couple of years ago, we purposely... Put a baseball bat in it? Well, we purposely chose an analog model, which had a sticker on it. Warning us that on July 24, 2011, the day of national switchover to digital-only broadcasting, it would essentially turn from a useless media pump to a useful paperweight. So that's of more value, he's saying. Sweet. We now enjoy watching The Blue Show when, out of habit and curiosity, we flip through the channels to see if perhaps there might be some rogue group of broadcasters pushing for an analog revival. All that to say that we're a couple of weeks behind on what the popular media is saying about the nuclear disaster. No loss for us. In the days following the disasters up north, okay, talking about the Fukushima thing, remember we are hundreds of miles away from the affected region. The news coverage of the nuclear meltdowns has gradually dwindled. Back when we could actually get a signal on our TV, we noticed that within a month it seemed to be business as usual. Then last week I overheard several teachers at the school I work at discussing the news from the night before, saying that it came out that an area or some areas in Fukushima Prefecture had much higher levels of radiation than had been revealed earlier. Later, when I asked one of the teachers about the situation, she shared with me that she thought that most Japanese people simply accept what they are told without questioning, even even concerning this dangerous situation. I would venture to say that many people here are even willfully ignorant. Thankfully, this is not the case for everyone. It seems that slowly the truth is coming out, even in popular media, that things are much, much worse than we were originally told. The food co-op where we get many of our groceries has been very helpful in giving us good information concerning food safety. They're very straightforward in their explanation of the looming danger of radiation contamination in our food supply and our testing foods they sell. But they warn that eventually... As the nuclear meltdowns continue to spew forth radioactive particles and gases, we will be exposed through our food supply. In a circular they put out on July 1st, they said that the time is coming when we, living in Japan, must choose between eating contaminated food or starving. Bleak as it may sound, I do appreciate their blunt approach rather than out-of-sight, out-of-mind approach, which is more common here. Mm -hmm. That's pretty bad. I guess they couldn't afford to re-import their food, but you know when you're very ground, what little ground they have to produce produce, which is not a lot in Japan, that that would be gone due to this. It's just well, horrible. one of the things that I think we reviewed here is that the Japanese tend to get like uber crazy about their rice. 
It's like it's not really rice yeah, unless it's in Japan. Yeah. And yeah. most of their rice their rice crops are contaminated yeah. with you know. Yeah. Well, he continues, a couple nights ago, I received a phone call from a Laotian friend of mine who works for a large Japanese company far north of Tokyo. I will withhold his real name because he's a believer from a persecuted country, Mm -hmm. but I would like to ask you to pray for him. Sam called me and told me that he had taken some time off to volunteer in Fukushima. It was, in fact, in Fukushima when he called. He had spent the past couple of days performing dramas, supporting street preaching, and inviting people to come to a type of shelter for those who were homeless due to the earthquake, tsunamis, and nuclear evacuation. Okay, so here's a Laotian guy, you know, real well-to-do kind of people. Yeah. Coming over to big, help Japan. Big time. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Apparently the shelter is run by Christians, which, you know, are otherwise hard to find in Japan. Yeah. And provides food and a place to sleep, amongst other things. He specifically asked me to pray for a homeless man he had befriended, the man was very disheveled, discouraged, and drunk when he first talked to Sam. At one point, the man, who turned out to have been in jail at the time of the quake and the tsunamis, asked Sam if God could really forgive him of his sins. Sam looked at him straight in the face and firmly told him that he would stake his life on it. The man appeared to become very afraid and ran away. Please pray for Sam, for this man, and for the people who remain in Fukushima, exposed to deadly radiation and already dead in their sins that they may be spared physically so that they may choose life, real life available only through the person of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Sweet, man. Sam is aware of the physical danger he's in and trusts that the Lord led him to volunteer in Fukushima for a purpose. Even when he is home in another prefecture to the south, he is still being exposed to high levels of radiation. He told me that many of his friends from here in Kyushu have written or called him warning he is in danger and should move back to our area. He believes that God has called him to that part of Japan for a purpose. But he is not alone in his strong conviction that he should be on the front lines. He told me he met all kinds of believers from all over the world who felt that God had called them to serve in Fukushima. He even met a family who had come with their children from Los Angeles. The father had had a vision or dream that made it clear to him that he was to quit his job and move the whole family to Fukushima to serve and share the gospel. Wow. He obeyed according to his faith. As I write this, my wife is watching a YouTube video of a presentation by a Tokyo University professor, Dr. Tadashuko Kodama, a nuclear expert to the Japanese diet. He said that the meltdowns have released 29 times the amount of radiation, and I would guess it also means particles, that were released in the bombing of Hiroshima. Oh, yeah. My pastor's been following the situation much more carefully than I have and has been writing letters and emails to various authorities and media outlets asking for transparency and truthful reporting. I am becoming more and more convinced that those in power in Japan do not love their people. If they truly did, they would have warned people in the greater region, perhaps stretching all the way down to Tokyo, that they will certainly suffer the effects of radiation if they do not move. Considering that the Chernobyl disaster has prematurely ended the lives of nearly a million people, according to a recent report, I would suspect that this current disaster will eventually kill tens of millions of Japanese people if there's not some kind of clear message put forth by those who've been saying peace and safety for the last three and a half months. Mm -hmm. Please take a look at the website fukushima.greenaction-japan.org. I guess it's more real data there. As it is late and it's become another ramble, I call it a day. 
As I come across more information or circumstances change, I will keep you posted. Thank you for your prayers, your kind words, and your willingness to offer help. If I'm ever in the U.S. and have time and money to come see you, I would like to try one of your White Castles. No, a, you wouldn't. <laughs> a cup of the best Joe you Southerners can come up with, and more importantly, some Christian fellowship. Your brother in Christ, Nate. Word. And then he says, by the way, Rockefeller, Nathalem, New World Order, and Ultraman. Sweet, man. So he got it all in there. We've you been got missing. it all down. Can I say a quick prayer? I was going to say, yeah. I almost uh, stopped you in the middle of the email, but I figured I, we get it at the end. I knew. I knew. Okay, I know ahead. you. Hit it. Heavenly Father, we just we pray, first of all, for Sam. Brother Sam, mm-hmm. who is risking his life, Lord, willingly, um, who's sold out to you. He's totally sold out to be a servant, given his life over, devoted to you. Lord, I pray for his protection. Lord, I pray um, for anyone, if there's family that depend on him or others, I pray that you'll take care of them too. But, Lord, please give a supernatural physical protection to him and give him a supernatural empowerment to be able to minister to the people there, Lord, and to bring not only life-saving but eternally saving help to the people there, Lord. And, uh, Lord, I, I just pray for the man that he's been trying to reach, the homeless person, Mm-hmm. That uh, wherever he is right now, Lord, if if he's not under your tender care right now, and and Lord acknowledging that, I pray that this would happen, Lord, that you would answer Sam's request, Lord. I pray for uh, Brother Nathan. I pray mm-hmm. that you would continue to protect him and his family and help him to see where to minister. His pastor, who's trying to intervene on behalf of the people of Japan, and Lord for the church. I just pray that the church um, would be emboldened and find a way. To, to bear spiritual fruit in the country, Lord, to minister first of all, and then to to see also, Lord, that they uh, could bring people closer to you through this work. And, Lord, if if you need to call more people from the states or elsewhere to go to these areas of Japan, I pray that, that people would heed the call, whether it be any of us, Lord, or, or whoever, that we would pick up and heed the call there to serve. Lord, we just pray for these wonderful people. We pray that they would come to a saving knowledge of you, and they would also be physically protected. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen, brother. Uh, that was a long one, I know. But can can I do uh, just two quick ones to finish up? Is that all right? Hit it, man. All right. This is from Matt. Okay. Matt's in Australia. So we had Japan, then we got Australia. I'd love to go to Australia, we're in the man. Pacific. We gotta get a, what we've got to do is start building a boat. Okay, we'll get and on then, that. Talk to Pyro. Maybe Pyro Merv can get working on it. Yeah. Uh, Matt says, to Dr. Future and Tom, insert middle name here, Bionic. Mm-hmm. So I just want to give you some feedback and, make, and to make you aware of how far-reaching your broadcast is. My name is Matthew, and I'm from Little Perth in Western Australia. I wouldn't say they're little. I mean, they're... They're the biggest town in the whole western half of Australia. Yeah. I know that may not be saying a lot, but you know you got a whole half a continent the size of the U.S. that you're the big town. So mm-hmm. anyway, I was introduced to your show by a good friend and workmate. That's cool that people in Perth are sitting talking about Future Quake, you know, in the office. I really enjoyed listening to the show in the car on the way to work after downloading it. Well, here is our salute to Perth. Good day, and no worries. Your broadcast has been really good as it contains conspiratorial themes from a biblical world point of view. There's a lot of junk out there in cyberspace that can lead people off course. Happens to me all the time. A lot of junk, a lot of junk. I understand that. 
It would be really good if people like you or your guests could come to Australia to speak. Because on the whole, Christians over here are not aware of what is happening, what is going to happen, and the current agenda of the big guns behind the scenes. Make it happen, brother. Yeah, make it happen. I'll do it. I'll go get irradiated. Well, we maybe can't take the future mobile, but we could paint up a... A future plane. Big old Qantas jet. With it would have the same graphics on it. We'll come over. Stuff. Yeah. Be awesome. But I hate to tell you, Matt, but the people here in the United States, even sometimes people in our own church, in our own country, are in the same category you just described. Yeah. Not aware of what's going on or what's going to happen. Don't know. Don't care. Yeah. Uh, we are living in perilous times, he says, but there's no better place for us to be than in the will of God. Amen. Thank you for what you guys do uh, as he is using you in an awesome and unique way. God bless you guys heaps. That's from Matt. Mm-hmm. Matt, bro, thank you for that encouraging word, man. We we get some real downer information here on Typical Future Quake, but our Futurians always raise the bar. Uh, here's here's a different kind of one to close out here. This is from Norm. Uh, Norm has emailed us before. And this is a topic that we touched on, a little touchy topic. Uh, he says, I was listening to one of your shows yesterday specifically mentioning homophobia. It's somehow straight out of the pulpit. I never once heard any pastor mention that they are real people, assuming someone homosexuals. That even includes my favorite pastor, who led me to the Lord back in January of 1980. I still listen to his sermons, although I find that I disagree with him sometimes. I don't know who said, the love the sinner, hate the sin, but it certainly didn't seem to include the homosexuals. I wonder... It really meant what it said, because I get the idea from some preachers that homosexuals lived on the fringe of society and were unsalvageable. Damaged goods, just throw them in the nearest dumpster. I was one of those, I'm better than you are, school brats. And when I saw homosexuals, or at least feminine-looking guys at school, I was one of the many who followed them around, making fun of them, never once thinking afterwards about their hurt feelings from being harassed so much. This was in the late 50s and early 60s. This goes back a ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not a new issue, obviously, if they were aware of them then. After January of 1980, I met lots of male homosexuals who apparently had bad memories of Christians and would have nothing to do with us. Some were extremely crass and me-oriented, while some others, which I met before 1980, were haunted by deeply rooted pains of some sort that I never understood. I was a homophobe from the word go, and after getting saved... The pulpits delivered messages that drove phobias even deeper. Oh, by the way, we use the gospel as a weapon, not as a redemptive message extended from a loving God. I relate to all this. We delivered it to gays more as a preemptive strike, just to get rid of them. You can rest assured that I'll get my cup puppets at the judgment seat of Christ. That is, if I'm really saved at all. You certainly can't tell by my behavior. Well, Brother Norm, I just want to tell you, that if these things are on your heart, that that's the sign of the Holy Spirit's working within you. So I don't want you to worry about your salvation, yeah, man. Brother Norm. Um, we'll um, we'll be there with you because it's not it's not in our righteousness; it's in the Lord Jesus. So if you lean on the Lord Jesus, we we might get a good talking to, you know, at least at the beam of judgment. And and again at the judgment seat, we may have some people pointing fingers at us, but it won't be just you, Norm. It's going to be. Tom and me both and others are going to have that, and We're it's shameful. Get, All we can do is avoid it. We just try to make things as right as we can right now. Okay, he says, sometime in mid-late 1980, I think, I moved in an apartment with two Christian guys. 
one of whom had been raped when he was eight, ruining him for a potential fatherhood, I think, unless he met an exceptional girl. He had feminine mannerisms, and I'm sure he was aware of it, as his shame made him confess to me that he really needed a hug. So I gave him a hug, but didn't have then and still don't have any idea on how it could have helped him at all. Maybe he wanted to know if I was homophobic. I still was, of course, but I faked it and I gave him the hug. It was all he asked for. You know, to interrupt here, I'm, I'm not a psychological expert or expert on this topic, but what I would guess is that when he asked for something like that, what I have heard is that men who've had a traumatic experience like that, you know, of a homosexual rape or so, they just want to have a female, excuse me, a male positive loving relationship that's not sexual. Mm-hmm. Okay, and a, and a hug shows that there is some kind of you know, positive, loving, caring relationship that doesn't have to have a sexual component between men. Yeah. So that's like the, probably the best thing you could have done. And what that tells me is that one of the things we could best do sometimes for people who have had this leading into a gay experience is to maybe deliver that kind of love in a non-sexual way. I was going to say. There may be others that we need that may be what we need to be doing for their healing. You know. Several years ago, I met uh, a gay guy who turned out my whole turned my homophobia into a simple desire to meet the guy. We worked together, and he was very honest from what I could tell. I used to tell him he needed to quit that lifestyle of his, to which he would agree, but I didn't share the gospel with him because I had planned for that later. He had a work schedule conflict. He worked in a gay bar until 3 in the morning, sometimes coming in late to work the daytime shift. He was given an ultimatum, work here or work there, but not both places at once, and he decided on the gay bar. Never returned to the daytime job, and I never got a chance to, to hear the gospel from me. I can only hope that someone more in tune with reality than I will reach him before the possibility of his becoming suicidal. When the Holy Spirit says do it, you just do it. If he says jump, you don't ask how high, you just jump. A lesson that even at the age of 63, I am still slowly learning. Well, I'm guessing you and I still have the thing too we're learning, right, Tom? It's it's all... And all all our Futurians. So, Norm, it's not just you, brother. I want to thank you for your convicting message. Please keep it up. It's just those simple few words that you guys say that may mean very little to you at the time you speak them that are the most effective and the most hard-hitting. And you hit me like a runaway freight train, Norm. Boom. Well, Norm, you minister back at us when we think, well, we do all this kind of stuff, and it don't mean hell of beans, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I spend probably nine or ten hours a day answering emails. And then getting ready for the show just like this, you know, a day or more, getting materials together, then editing and everything. And you think, this is not doing anything. The world's just getting worse and worse. And, you know, but it's emails like these folk who just send it to us that really make it worthwhile. Man, I had a, I, I have lunch with a friend of mine every Tuesday. And, uh, uh, we were talking about stuff. And he says, man, sometimes I wish I could be you. Like, are you, did you hit your head or something coming in here? Yeah. He's I'm like, you know, you've got, you got a. I know how he feels. You got a, you got a, you got a wife, and you know, you're gonna have your first kid here pretty quick, and mm-hmm. you know. You're all, talking about this other person. Yeah, all yeah. these. Well, me too, but yeah. just kidding. Um, you've got all these things, you know, and it's like things are going good. He's like, he looks at me with almost tears in his eyes. He's like, I've never led anybody to the Lord. Wow. And. And you have it like coming out your ears. Yeah. 
And it's like, well, I think there's something. I'm starting to wonder if those two things, like, you know, yeah. total total life upheaval mm-hmm. and, you know, leading people to the Lord, there's some sort of a... Yeah, maybe. Something, something to it, I think, because maybe. all the people that I respect, with the exception mm-hmm. of maybe N.T. Wright, um, like, they all have these, like... There's like crazy paths, you know, it's like yeah. they took one of those learn to dance books, they cut the feet out and then just sort of tossed them around the room, you know, and you got to kind of figure out it's mm-hmm. like one, two, three's away or the other you side. You are the king of the Four. bizarre example, you know that? Well, you know, there's a reason for that. Why that? I took an English class from a really intelligent English professor that I really respected. Yeah. And he, he said, you know, we were we were in the midst of reading through Chaucer. Yeah. And he says, you know. One of the interesting things here is how Chaucer came up with new analogies and stuff to to prove his point. Because mm-hmm. really, after all, analogies and cliches are just an excuse to think. Yeah. And I thought, he's right. Yeah. What I ought to do is start developing my own analogies. And that way they stick in people's heads. You've taken it to another dimension, though. Well, that's the whole point, right? Instead of having mm-hmm. something that, you know... Yeah. We just sort of throw it out, and it's old, like, country-storied wisdom. I give you a different, I give you a piece of information that makes you think. Yeah. Instead yeah. of, you you know that you're what, getting at, you know you're hacking away at somebody's worldview when you start telling parables and stories. So yeah. I do, that's why I do so many things in stories. We'd like to keep that to a bare minimum. We don't want to get people thinking too much around here, because it gets you all bothered, you know. You start questioning stuff. Mm-hmm. The last thing we want to do is disrupt the status quo. Speaking of somebody else who doesn't disrupt the status quo is Murph, who can tell all our listeners how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. Amazingly, we end up with another couple hours of show. For shizzle. You ready to say goodbye? Goodbye. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be with you all this week. Um... Just keep hanging with us. We thank you so much for a few churns that have been with us for many years. And we hope we're like family to you. Not the bad kind of family you hate seeing, but the good kind. Mm-hmm. And we hope you have a wonderful week this week. And until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake. quake.